to episode 12 of The God Learners, a podcast about gaming and reading in the mythical world of Glorantha. I am Ludovic, aka Lord Abdul. I am Jörg. And our guest today is Shannon Applecline. Hi, Shannon. Yeah, hello. So, yeah, Shannon, you've been a long time uh, cont contributor to Things Chaosium and RuneQuest. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, I um, started uh, gaming, I think, like m many people did with Dungeons and Dragons. Um, way back in 82 is my best guess from my uh, a faint memory where I uh, got the uh, BX D&D set for my birthday or Christmas, one or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I was young, I played any number of games, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, Champions, uh, um, Traveler, uh, Stormbringer, Hawkmoon. Um, notably, you'll note, not including RuneQuest. Uh, RuneQuest, I actually uh, met in college, a good friend of mine named Eric Rowe. Uh, I got to college and I went down the first Saturday to uh, Dwinell Hall in the Berkeley campus and they were doing gaming and uh, there was an Ars Magica game and there was a RuneQuest game and I joined in both of them and I fell in love with uh, both of the uh, game systems um, and ended up writing for both of them as it happened. Uh, Eric's uh, long-term game was set in his own world so it was actually a bit longer before I was introduced to, to Glorantha Pop proper uh he had a world called urzo that we played mm, three or four campaigns and depending on how you uh define it between about 1989 and when he uh left the country in 2004 um not not all contiguous he ran at least one or two glorantha campaigns too uh and somewhere amidst that in becoming uh enamored in the world of glorantha and the game system of runequest And the fact that I'd learned that I could professionally write for uh, role-playing companies, uh, I started doing some uh, writing. Um, much of the early stuff was for Trade Talk magazine, which you're familiar with, and uh, for your book of tentacles. Uh, never actually wrote for Tales of the Reaching Moon, which was, of course, the, uh, I'd call it kind of the core fanzine of the uh, 90s. <laughs> and uh, my friend Eric got a job at Chaosium, and uh I said afterwards, hey, is, is there any space for someone else there? And uh, I went for an interview with the uh, famous and awesome Lynn Willis, and he hired me. And I did mostly uh, Call of Cthulhu when I was there with just a sprinkling of Pendragon, because at the time, Chiasium had very little to do with uh, RuneQuest or Glorantha, other than the uh, non-gaming uh, books that uh, Greg Stafford was putting out at the time. Uh, and... Um, I've done more and more since then. Uh, sometime early on, we started talking about elves, and I ended up writing about elves for Trade Talk. And uh, I have, at this point, written three books on elves, one of which has been published. <laughs> so the one that's published is the Mongoose uh, RuneQuest uh, book, yeah. right? right. Uh, it was actually the second one I wrote, and it was the one that I wrote the fastest. Um, <laughs> What happened was uh, sometime in the 90s, I, I'm not sure I can really put together the dates anymore. Uh, someone said, hey, Ken Rolston has this stuff that he wrote on elves, uh, which would have been about the elves of Dorister. It has the elf secret in it. And, you know, are you interested in doing some more work with it? Uh, 
And I said, sure. And I said, you know, what really interests me is kind of developing the mythology. And I started writing myths about the elves, usually as background for for the articles that I was writing for the fanzines at the time. Uh, And I kind of spun my wheels on that for for five years or so. And uh, then another one of my friends who was deeply involved in RuneQuest, who was uh, Steve Martin, said, you know, you really need to start writing that book rather than just doing these short articles. And so uh, Isseries at the time uh, had come out with Hero Wars. And so Greg and Steve wrote me a contract to write an elf book for Hero Wars, which I did. It was, I think, the biggest solo project I'd done at that point, about 100,000 words. Uh, I'd previously written some Ars Magica and Call of Cthulhu stuff, but it was all either co-authored or, you know, parts of a book. And by the time it was done, Greg was living in Mexico and Isseries had stopped publishing and uh, it sat for years and years. And I thought, wow, I'm never going to do something like that again. (laughs) Um, And so that was the first one. It's never been published. And I'm not 100% convinced that it's a great role-playing supplement at this time because it's so big picture. It's a lot of what what was going on with HeroQuest. You know, it like talks about every single elf forest in the... uh, uh, all of Glorantha, and so great source material, great background, and it did have the stuff on the gods and stuff, which I think was crucial, but uh, real gameable material, not so much. Shortly after that, when it became obvious that history was, was never going to publish anything again, which they indeed never did, Mongo's picked up the license, and uh, they started doing uh, race books, um, and so they started doing these books on the elder races, and I said, oh no, someone else is going to write a book on Elton that's going to contradict my 100,000 words that I had already written. That's awful. Uh, this was the sunk cost fallacy, the fact that I'd already done this work actually had no bearing on with whether I needed to do additional work or not. But um, I uh, mailed someone at Mongo's, probably Matthew, and said, hey, uh, I have all this work I've done. I know all about elves. Please let me write the book. And he was reluctant because they were doing almost all of their work in-house at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a uh, in-house methodology, which allowed them to do very fast turnaround of products uh, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, somehow I convinced him and he said, okay, but we need it in, I don't know, it was a few months. And so I wrote the second elf book, which was uh, a little longer than half the size of the first one, 50, 60,000 words. I'm not sure which. Uh, as I recall, the majority of the text got written in about a month, which I have no idea how I did because, uh, I was working a full-time job at the time. And did Um, did you end up contradicting yourself? Uh, I tried my best not to. Um, (laughs) I, I had my, uh, first elf book in front of me and, uh, I reviewed it and my intent was to include nothing in the second book that was in the first. I wanted to make them as much as possible totally complimentary books because I still thought that somehow that histories book was going to get published. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, I talked more about like occupations and families and stuff in the second one, which hadn't been covered as well in the first. So uh, I tried to have them be interlinking and the Mongo's book. It was also more playable. We had some, you know, very specific areas. Uh, I know there's one in the Arstola forest. Uh, I don't remember what else is in there exactly, but hopefully not contradictory. Hopefully, complimentary uh, just no one will ever know they're complimentary except me because uh, I don't think anyone's ever going to see that original manuscript 
but now you've <laughs> written a third one that should get published. Yes. So that's uh, Elf Pack. Uh, that was my kind of secondary project uh, last year. It was under contract for Chaosium. And I'm very pleased with how it came out. Uh, Jeff has been really, his imagination for the RuneQuest uh, Glorantholine at Chaosium has been great because he did something that has never been done before in, you know, 30, 40 years of uh, a Glorantholin publication, which is, he said, we are going to make this very playable. We are going to choose a specific locale. We're going to base everything around that locale. And every product that we put out is going to be full of playable material. You know, it's not just going to be myths that, uh, you know, you can read and enjoy Glorantha. It's not going to be far scattered stuff. It's going to be a locale. And so giving me that uh, precept, I sat down and I said, okay, we're going to write about the elf forest directly around Dragon Pass where everything else is. So, you know, that included a hair of uh, Arstola, what we call the Old Woods, which is kind of in the very corner. Uh, that included the Stinking Forest. Uh, mm. And it included, you know, things that I never really thought about before. I, I think the biggest of which was the Dryad Woods. And uh, I, I think the entirety of what was written about the Dryad Woods previous to mine was maybe a couple of sentences. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not, not a lot. So I think it resolved in something that's very playable. And of course, we have all of the, the cults in the uh, farm that we're going to hopefully see in the cults of uh, Glorantha book, which cool. I had in front of me when I was doing a lot of the work. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have complete character creation and the character creation uses the new uh, life path system that we find in RuneQuest uh, Glorantha, except rather than being your grandparents and parents in your life, it's the life of your forest dating back to the dawn. And so there are, you know, about 20 entries, some of which aren't applicable to all elves that, you know, date back to, I was woken by the Awakeners, or, or my family was, but elves kind of remember everything in their forest. And so uh, it's, I think, a really nice uh, kind of spot history of Glorantha too, besides very importantly saying what's... Um, important elves and kind of teaching it along the way with the life path, which was the intent of the life paths. Okay. So um, before we dive uh, a bit more into elves and stuff, I want to mention a few other non-Glorantan things that you're famous for. Uh, the first of which is Designers and Dragons, which is uh, currently a four-volume history of uh, RPGs, because you're a like one of the foremost, I would say, RPG historians. Um, and so it's a, it's a great book for anybody who wants to know about the history of the hobby and um, the history of all the companies that have published games over the, the decades. Uh, there's one book per decade, but um, it's actually a bit, um, like a bit weird in the sense that, for example, the 70s book is about all the companies that were created in the 70s. So if you want to know about what Chaosium did at the turn of the 21st century, you still need to get the 70s book because Chaosium was uh, founded in the um, early 70s. And so it covers the entire Chaosium stuff, which means, do you have any sequels in the work? And how is that going to work? Because now you're <laughs> going to have to cover companies that were 
covered in earlier decades and like yeah yeah how how are you gonna do that <laughs> yeah so i have um eight sequels in the work oh, uh, <laughs> so um about two years ago i moved out to hawaii which is where i live now and uh that kind of gave me the oomph to leave behind my full-time job, trade it off for some contracting and trade it off for some writing of my own. So yeah. uh, nowadays I'm a, doing about half-time writing on uh, role-playing related things. Yeah. Uh, and so one of the first things I started with was a project that I called Designers and Dragons, The Lost Histories. Uh, and the goal there is to go back and talk about a lot of the companies that I didn't write about the first time um, for the older decades because they were probably smaller than the uh, ones that I wrote about are very poorly documented. And for the newer decades, often because I didn't know that they were going to be important yet. Hmm. So uh, the lost histories is uh, going to be two volumes. Uh, the first one's going to cover the seventies and the eighties and the second, the nineties and the odd odds. And uh, so they should just fit nicely right next to the other ones, just more things that could have gone into that earlier volume, uh, but didn't. Uh, and I've done some very specific Laurentian-related uh, writing. There is a history in the uh, 80s, I guess, uh, for a Reaching Moon Megacarp, which put out its uh, first yeah. tale of the Reaching Moon in 1989. Uh, and it talks a lot about Glorantham fandom and how Glorantham fandom uh, kept alive Glorantha during uh, the really bad period when First, Avalon Hill was putting out horrible uh, books, and then when they weren't putting out any, and then after uh, the brief renaissance, when again they weren't putting out any. Um, <laughs> and so whenever I write these histories, I always think, you know, not just how can I tell the history of the company, but also what lessons can it show? Uh, what can it talk about about the industry at the whole that's interesting? And so... I thought the Reaching Moon Megacarp uh, history was interesting, both for the power of fandom and for how fandom has kept uh, more than one um, uh, yeah. role-playing game alive at various times. Traveler is the other really big one that was supported by fandom, very similarly when it stopped publication in the 90s. Uh, I also wrote one for uh, The Lost Histories on Moon Design Publications, which, of course, is the company that... Uh, actually really owns RuneQuest right now, if you uh, uh, look, look at the copyrights. But, you know, it's merged with Chaosium. And, and so it's it, it's one of those cases where beforehand it was like, uh, they're the licensed publisher of uh, HeroQuest. They're doing an occasional book. They've done some really great books, but are they important enough? And now it's like, oh, they're the company that is now Chaosium. And so their history and the great work that Chaosium is doing now all goes back uh, to the work that was done there. Yeah. So um, Lost Histories are, are those two volumes. And the uh, third Designers and Dragons proper volume that I'm doing is on the tens. As you mentioned, one per decade. Uh, the books originally came out in um, 2012, 13, 14. There were two editions. Uh, and so I couldn't cover the tens yet. And <laughs> the biggest request I got was, when's the tens going to come out? Uh, starting a few years before the decade was over. And I <laughs> always told them, I need at least a few years after the decade to uh, know yeah. what was important. And I, I'd already realized that in the odd odds, even though it was the biggest of all of the books, I, I missed one major trend, which was the uh, old school renaissance, the OSR. And mm -hmm. It's because, you know, I, I initially locked the books down in 2011 or 2012, 
And the first OSR games were coming out way at the end of the odd odds. And they were only hitting publication in 2009 or so um, for the first time. And so it, it was a trend that today is influencing the whole industry and just wasn't as obvious at the time. So those are my designers and dragons. I told you that last year, uh, the Elves book was my secondary project. Those three volumes are my primary project. And I've got uh, somewhere around two of those three books done, but I write in one company at a time. So (laughs) it's no coherent book. Um, I'm also doing a four book volume on TSR product histories. Uh, Some years ago, I was approached by the people at DriveThruRPG and they said, hey, you can't tell anyone, but we're going to have D&D PDFs uh, for sale soon. Uh, it's easy to remember. It's easy to forget now how exciting that was at the time because the D&D PDFs had been off the market for several years because of you know fears of piracy, which I won't quite say are irrational, but I mean, they're not a way to not reason not to sell things. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I said, sure, but I want to maintain rights for them. And this, you know almost ended up in the project not happening, not because drive-through RPG wasn't totally understanding, but it's just complex to write a contract, you know, figure out what rights stay where, when, uh, and such, when they were also trying to get this uh, whole uh, launch done because they initially launched, I don't know, 100 products or something, maybe more. Um, But they were great. They figured it out. The rights stayed with me. And so years later, now that I have time, I'm turning those product histories into actual books. And so I'd originally outlined, okay, 1,000 D&D products over, you know, those uh, uh, 50 years. That sounds like a four-volume series. Um, so I'm now doing a four-volume series, and it actually covers OD&D, the first edition of AD&D, and basic D&D. So <laughs> kind of 1974 to 1989 and a little overflow for the uh, end of the known world and Mistara and uh, maybe there'll more, be more books later on for second, third, fourth, and fifth edition. But mm. th- this is what I'm doing right now because uh, it, it's what I'd primarily written for uh, the D&D Classic website. And so I have good starts, at least for all of them. Um, and the last book I'm working on right now is a history book, is a uh, system history of Traveler. Um, mm. Mongoose, uh, Matt Sprague over there contacted me uh, in December or January and said, hey, you know, would you like to do a Traveler history? And if there are two games that are the games that are closest to my heart, uh, they're probably RuneQuest and Traveler. I don't know, Ars Magica, Pendragon, they're up there too. But those are two of the crucial ones. And so I said, yes, I'd love to. I'd already done a little work with uh, Mark Biller, putting some reviews I'd written together as kind of a... um, uh, view of what were the sources that inspired Traveler. And so that's the other project I'm working on today. And uh, just as the Elves book was my uh, secondary project last year, leaving me deeply immersed in Glorantha and RuneQuest all year, this year my secondary project is Traveler. And I <laughs> similarly feel like Traveler has just filled my head this year. <laughs> I uh, I started I just started getting into Traveler the last year with the new Mongoose edition, which looks great to me. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, when I started looking into the history of Traveler, I'm like, oh wow, the publication history is almost as complicated as RuneQuest. So yeah, I'll be happy yeah. to uh, see you all 
laid out um, uh, in a way that um, makes it yeah. understandable. Yeah, I think I think you just did uh, an article on uh, RPG.net uh, where you talk about weird histories and bring up uh, Glorantha and Traveler. Yeah, that that wasn't accidental because I've been thinking so much about Traveler and I have such deep understanding of of RuneQuest. But I also do think that they are the two role playing games that really do have the the weirdest history. And the other one I included in that article was Talislanta, which I'm not quite as familiar with, but it similarly had I think I came up with eight editions somewhere around there. Uh, and everyone has a different name. Some are in different time periods. Um, yeah, yeah, they're they're all very weird. And uh, certainly, while working on this system history of Traveler, I've wondered. I wonder if there's a similar one that I should be writing for RuneQuest in some future year. We'll see if someone's interested in it. Before we go into the main topic, we have uh, uh, a bit of news to mention very quickly. First is that uh, if the listeners want to follow all the news about Glorantha, we have the Journal of Runic Studies, uh, our weekly newsletter, which well tries to compile everything we find on the web that is related to Glorantha f- um, from close or far. Uh, including any you know real world stuff that might be good as inspiration, um, any random stuff that is applicable to Glorenta. Um, so you can subscribe to that, email RSS, or just follow the links on the blogs. Um, we also put out the new episode of the Glorenta Initiation series, which is our podcast series interviewing newbies to uh, Glorenta. The latest episode is with Diana Probst of Beer with Teeth. So um, she basically went from newbie to um, publisher of community content to um, actually Chaosium contractor in a matter of like, what, two years or something? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, uh, it's quite the uh, trajectory. But anyway, so you can listen to her interview. Um, it was released just like maybe a couple of weeks ago by the time this uh, thing comes out. And we still have like a bunch of um, other interviews already recorded um, with a, a few other newbies. And it's always interesting to hear um, how people came to Glorenta and what they think about it. And uh, last thing is that The Six Paths, the book on the Johnston Companion by Eden Johns and uh, Catherine Derim, which deals with uh, gender roles in Glorantha, so it has um, an explanation of the different uh, genders and sexes of uh, Hortling culture, plus some um, extended cult write-ups for uh, Vinga, Heller, and Nenden. Nenda? Nenden? Nenda. Plus several NPCs that are, you know, LGBTQ and to show you an example of how these characters can fit in Glorenta. And so this is on drive through. It has been fast-tracked for um, print-on-demand, so it's available as soft cover now already. And uh, Chaosium and the authors are donating the proceeds of the sales to um, some charities related to uh, LGBTQ stuff. So we'll have links in the show notes for that too. Yeah. 
Um, any other news? Well, uh, there's been another uh, recent uh, publication uh, of uh, an Oasis in Prex, which is finally some stuff for Prexians to play in Prex. <laughs> yeah. And not just in the Zola Fair Valley. Right. So that's uh, well, uh, Days Rest, I think it was. Yes, Days Rest by uh, Jamie Revel. Yes. Cool. We'll have links and we'll just run away from news uh, because we have a lot to talk about uh, about uh, Aldrian. Yeah, Thorny Matters. <laughs> yes. Um, so, as we stop these series on, like, the people of Glorantha, um, starting with the, the Aldriami, uh, we are making the assumption that, you know, the listeners have at least the core rulebook and bestiary, um, and that, um, you know, they might be newbies to Glorantha, but they at least have the base, basic books. So we're not going to rehash too much of it, but just to set up the context, the Aldriami are um, the elves of Glorantha, and I guess the pitch would be what if Legolas was Swamp Thing, I guess? The elves are plant people. What what would be your like elevator pitch, Shannon? Well, I, I think I would say the uh, elves of Glorantha are, as you said, plant people who are in tune with their forest uh, and... Uh, interact with it in a community collaborative way where they really are all one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, publication history-wise and game design-wise, where did these elves come from? Because they are... Uh, I mean, we know that um, Greg Stafford didn't quite re- uh, read Tolkien unless until like much later, but those elves also don't really... Um, look like um, the you know classic British folklore or Scandinavian folklore elves either. I think so. What, do, do you know where they came from? You know how they came to be this way? Yeah, I don't know that I could tell you Greg's uh, origins for the elves. Uh, you can certainly find them in his very early mythic maps. Uh, yeah. You see the uh, white elves up uh, on the spike, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the elven forests kind of appear as the mythic ages go by, appear and disappear and appear. Um, you say they don't look like uh, kind of the traditional European elf. I'm not convinced that was as much the case early on. Yeah. Uh, I think if you look at the uh, earliest uh, pictures, you know, probably gaunt faces, uh, sharp ears, uh, all of that. I'm not quite sure, like, when the yeah. leaves started appearing in the uh, hair and such. Uh, I do know that by the mongoose era, they were totally looking like plant. Like, I'm not convinced that was really the case beforehand. They've always been described as such, but I don't know they were necessarily depicted as such. So I'd really say it's a 21st century uh, element where they've really pushed hard into, yes, they look like they are, are made of plants. I think there's been an evolution that they were never token elves, but over time we've learned more and more about them. Uh, the problem is that they just weren't as popular as it were in the uh, 
you know, first uh, great golden age of Glorantham publication. You could find some elves in the garden in the Pavis box. I'm not really sure there's much else about them in early. Raven thing. Mountain has them as a major encounter. Oh, right, but of the, course. Uh, those are pretty, uh, pretty close to standard role-playing uh, tropes. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that different from other systems, uh, really. Probably because the uh, product wasn't Glorantham originally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Griffin Mountain was the other classic one that has uh, a lot of elves and was a pretty major source when writing about their history and stuff. But as Jorg suggested, uh, when it was originally written, it was going to be a Judges Guild supplement that was a gateway product. And so it just happened to be so good that Greg said, let's bring this into Glorantha. Right. Okay. Again, the RuneQuest bestiary has a generic presentation of the elves. They are um, split in different groups that all have like their you know elf name, but um, most of the time people refer to them with their you know god learner name, like you know uh, the brown elves and the green elves and all that. And each group matches a certain type of plant. So, you know, the brown elves are all of the deciduous trees. Uh, the green elves are the coniferous trees, etc., etc. Um, there's a bit more information about all those groups in the guide compared to the bestiary. Um, when you start looking at this this way, I find that because the plant world is so vast and varied, you can find, you know weird plants that maybe don't match to elves and um and you can almost fairly easily make up new kinds of elves that hasn't that haven't been described like is it something you've thought about like looking up weird stuff happening in the flora uh, of the real world and then taking that back and inventing some weird aspect of elf culture or or elf uh, characters um, some, yeah. um, I, I think when I've done my, you know, research and writing on the elves, I, I've more often focused on their mythology, their philosophy, their culture and all the things like that. But every once in a while I, I do hit something. I'm like, wow, that would be a great element. Like someone during the time period I was working on the uh, elf book for, uh, RuneQuest Glorantha mentioned these uh, vampiric trees that basically put out these roots uh, and they suck up the uh, sap nutrients. I, I don't remember exactly from from the other trees in the area, and uh, they're uh, I think albino uh, redwoods, if I recall correctly. And so I was like, well, we have a redwood forest. It's actually outside of the uh, realm of what's in the new book, but clearly that's a great place to talk about them and there were some other weirdnesses that were being discussed at the whole time that ended up with me writing a whole little myth on um the types of undead that elves see which you know they're not zombies and uh uh, vampires and stuff they're these vampiric trees and you know these petrified trees and uh (laughs) these trees that are filled with uh insects uh and are rotting away from the inside you know different types of horror um, so, uh, that type of, of thing certainly comes in. I know there've been a few others where I'm like, wow, that is such a weird and great idea. And one of the things I, I discovered is like, one of the reasons I like writing myths is because it kind of gives me a different in 
and it lets me generate a lot of these ideas and uh then they can go into the role-playing material. And so I was writing one myth and uh, a lot of myths are based on threes and I needed like a second type of elf. And I was like, vine elves. I don't remember ever reading about vine elves. So why aren't they here? And so in this little myth, I wrote a tiny bit about vine elves and how they were uh, uh, created to uh, try and get into the hard stone that was being created by the dwarves. And, you know, they ended up crushed by it or something. And that's why there aren't vine elves around anymore. So certainly a lot of looking at uh, plants and saying, how are these represented as elves? And if not, why not? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, we might as well talk a bit about the mythology, actually. Uh, so the basic of it, as I understand it, um, is that you had like uh, Flamal, who is the father of seeds and the basically the base god for everything that grows he married like um, a, a god, a goddess called the Grower, which is probably Arnalda. Uh, they had Aldria as a kid, uh, and from there you have like all the plants as further down different like uh, branches of the uh, of the dynasty, plus a bunch of related um, deities like elves also routinely worship Yalmalio for the sun aspect. Uh, Babistergor, uh, Tychoratek, even I think, uh, and a couple of other gods that are um, that are known to the humans, although they might have different names, I assume. But generally speaking, the pantheon of the elves and the elder races in general is true to the, the same for the trolls, for example, are much smaller, at least at first glance, than the humans. So is that you know, human bias from the god learners and the game designers? Or is that actually like, no, the elder races tended because of, you know, the way they work, they tend to have less gods? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> so uh, what you described is, is very much the mythology and it's very much the god learner mythology, which means it's totally right. And totally wrong. Um, <laughs> so, um, when I was uh, working on mythology of the elves, which is the part that really has gone almost thirty years of uh, mm -hmm. focus, one of the things I looked at was what el what gods that are known by other people are actually elven gods, are actually worshipped by elven gods, and also what type of other gods do they have? Mm -hmm. So, it, and a, a lot of this. I don't know exactly what came from Greg at this point and what to end because they were discussions long, long ago. Uh, but Greg had this idea of seedings. Uh, I know that came from him uh, where he said, okay, you know, uh, these primordial gods seeded this kind of generation of gods. And when these seeds grew, then they seeded a new generation and a new generation. And so there's two or three seedings. Um, and, the elves worship maybe 20 gods overall. Mm -hmm. um, and pragmatically, the elves worship one god, which is Aldraia. If you, you know, look at the old uh, cult diagrams, 90, 95% of elves worship Aldraia. And so I, I think um, it, it's really a question that I, I looked at when I uh, was working on, on the elf mythology. Should they have more gods because there's so many more gods among the humans yeah. and 
I think probably a, a fairer representation is, you know, to look at one culture of humans, you know. Uh, yeah. I, I guess you look at the Dara Hoppins and they have, you know, over a hundred gods as, and, as and, we see from the God wall. It's not just that there are more gods with the humans, but it's more spread out, you know. It's like yeah. you, you take, you know, Sartre writes, you're going to have a third worshipping Orland, the third worshipping Anorlda, mm-hmm. and the third that are scattered all across. And so, but you look at, you know, elves, for example, and you go like, oh, you know, 90% worship Aldria, and there's much less diversity. Yeah, well, the the most important thing to uh, remember about the elves is what was introduced to me 25 years ago is the elf secret, which is, I think, pretty widely uh, apparent in the writing now, which is that the elves all have this elf sense, this life sense, which lets them sense everything else that's going on in the forest. Um, It may have originally been described to me as telepathy when when I first heard about it. I've certainly never read about like that. But really, you know, an elf in his forest, over time, he can know everything experienced by every other plant being in that forest. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that creates a unity that's utterly unknown in Mm -hmm. any other culture. And so it's not surprising when you have that foundation that everyone worships Aldraya. And there's beyond that unity community. Um, And because of that community, all the elves are working toward the betterment of the forest to a certain extent. Um, And that means that they all know that most of them need to worship Aldraya. That's, you know, their goddess of plants, of, of growth. She's the one that, you know, makes the forest go round. She, uh, she's the, the one that they need to worship. And so of course they mostly worship her. Um, and if someone, there's a lesser need for worship of the light God, which is Yomalio or Halamaleo in among the elves, there's lesser need to worship the uh, water God who is Aaron, Orion. Uh, there's lesser need to worship the earth goddess who is Gata. They all exist, but they kind of exist in their very specified and necessary spots. There's a necessity among Eldraya to worship some of the bad gods too, like the uh, goddess of the dark, who is Zara, the dark sun, uh, and uh, the uh, god of stone, who is Akim. And so a very, very small number worship that because it's necessary. So uh, you look at it and yeah, it's, it's very unified and that's because of who the elves are. Yeah, and, and, and you know, when you talk about worshipping the bad gods it's also because the elves in addition to this sort of uh, culture of uh, community and unity that you say is sort of foreign to humans they also have this very strong concept of death as a part of the cycle of life and and the you know through the seasons and all that and new plants growing from dead plants so they have this this completely different approach to you know, life and death. Yeah, they, there's two philosophical um, underpinnings for uh, Alderami society that I came up with over the years. One's the balance and the other's the cycle. The balance says there's these things that um, cause growth and there's these things which cause what they call taking and they have to be balanced. Uh, once upon a time, there was only growth that was in the green age and we grew until we cracked the sun dome, the, the sky dome. Uh, and that was horrible. We let chaos into the world and we almost destroyed it. Uh, and there was another time when there was only taking and that was the darkness. And it was when uh, 
you know, chaos and trolls and all the other things ate everything they could and destroyed everything. And that was very bad. And they almost destroyed the world. And so the balance says that these two things need to always be equal. And we are the, uh, you know, children of growth. And so it's our job to do the growing, but we don't hate the the taking. That's something that's in balance too. Chaos is something else. Chaos yeah. <laughs> um, takes without ever giving back. So it's very, very bad. But the growth and the taking, those are in balance. And the other one that you mentioned is the cycle. And it, it, it's maybe another way of looking at, at the balance, but it's saying everything dies so that everything can live. And, you know, they recognize that they all live in Glorantha and then they all go die in Tycora Tech, which they call Trigora. And then they all come back. And so elves believe in reincarnation and it's very rare that they actually have memories of their past lives. So there are some instances of it, but because of this community and union that they have through elf sense, they can actually still talk to people who are dead down in the underworld, possibly not very well, usually only during winter. Uh, the brown elves are the only ones who actually can do it because they're half dead all of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's all part of life to them. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Uh, I, and I love how, you know, past the fact that all of those myths, you know, are, you know, very classic myths that are very nice uh, stories that also explain actual phenomenon like, you know, the, the seasons and, the, and the, the growing of plants. I also love how every elder race and various cultures all have a way to say like, oh yeah, the God's war and the letting chaos into the world, that, that was our fault. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I love that. Now, the thing is, you've written a whole bunch of myth and actually you've shared quite a few on, you know, on Facebook and social media. And so you've got those great, you know, stories and backstories and things like that. And how do you actually bring that in play? Because, you know, it's like you said a bit earlier, it's like a myth is, you know, nice if you read it and you enjoy it. But it's like the old, you know, D&D scenarios that talk about some backstory about the dungeon 200 years ago, but the players never learned about it because it doesn't matter. So how do you make it matter? In uh, Whenever I was uh, writing a myth, my goal was to try and make it matter. And so... Uh, sometimes it was more philosophical and it was like (laughs) this particular element um, in the story of the myth is missing right now. We don't, you know, what happened, know what happened when darkness came into the world or whatever, but more often I'll look at it. And I think I got better at this particularly as I went on and say, how can I really ground this and make it concrete and have it tell real things about the world? Um, You know, talk about cultures, occupations, beliefs, Mm -hmm. um, I'm pretty sure that came uh, uh, through because I've heard people say, wow, I love the fact that the myths, every, every one of them had some type of, you know, real repercussion, really, really showed something about the culture, about how elves think. And so my hope would be that if someone read through a book of myths, all the myths I've posted to Facebook, and hopefully we'll figure out some other way to release in some point, that they would come away with it. They're, they're not in the elf pack? No, they're not in the elf oh, pack. Damn it. Okay, yeah. Uh, keep going. There's, um, here's a short section on mythology. Um, 
five or 10 pages of, of myths plus history. And, you know, it certainly uh, touches on many of the individual myths I've read, but I've read 30, 40. I- I'm not quite sure how many individual myths, each a couple of pages long. There was no way that was going in alpha pack. I mean, I, I guess it could have is like a standalone book or something, mm-hmm. um, but I don't even feel like it's done yet. I feel like there's still gaps that, that I need to fill. But be kind out. But yeah, so how do you bring them in the game? My hope is that if a game master or a player read through it, they would read through it and they would come away with an understanding of, of elves, that they would enjoy it as fiction and understand it better, and that the individual stories don't have to be a part of it. But the way you make those individual myths apart is through hero quests. I mean, it's kind of the foundational element of what makes RuneQuest different from other fantasy role-playing games. It's being addressed, I think, more than ever in the current iteration of the roles. Um, and it means that every single myth that anyone ever writes can be an adventure. Right. So often when I was writing myths, I'd be like, you know, what obstacles can I put in the way? Uh, what rewards can I offer? What things can I do that don't just tell the myth, but might someday be a good adventure? And one of the uh, adventures that I wrote for Elfpack touches upon that. It's an adventure called The Great Graft. Uh, it's about the stinking forest and the fact that the stinking forest has long been divided between uh, several tribes of elves, uh, three three main tribes of elves, that one of them is very warlike and creating, you know, attempting to bring the whole forest together, you know, at the point of a spear, and that the other ones aren't, aren't that great on it. So how can they come together uh, in a more... A communal and united way? And the answer is a hero quest. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, an actual hero quest. I mean, we don't have hero quest roles, so it's written slightly abstractly, but it touches upon nine, 10, 12, I forget how many uh, historical and mythical events that the players briefly participate in, make a crucial decision on, and it has some repercussion on whether the great graft occurs or not. So I think stories like that, and especially as we get full hero quest rules are, are the other way to bring this in. And uh, the last way is just, it, it should influence, you know, things that you're writing in the modern day. You know, if there was uh, some of the myths that I, I wrote when I was working on it were about the first pruner among the elves, uh, the first elf who realized you know, sometimes we have to take on the powers of the taker ourselves, and, you know, cut back the plants that are bad for us. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, wow, I don't have a pruner occupation. And so there's now a pruner occupation and it name checks the uh, historical person who's from the stinking forest also, as it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that might lead someone to say, wow, there's some stories about him. I might want to read those. So given that Glorantha is based on myth, I think there's a multitude of ways that, that they can be brought in. They just have to be looked at as um, kind of the foundation of the setting in many ways. Well, since you were talking about occupations um, and the bestiary actually already gives like uh, maybe a page of rules to create, uh, well, actually a couple pages of rules if you include a couple um, cults to create uh, elf adventurers. What would be your recommendations or advice to portray elves? And and that's also valid probably for game masters who start bringing elves as NPCs. So um, I, I've run a few different times how to, how to play elves. And I, I feel like the passion system of uh, RuneQuest Glorantha 
really gave a great foundation for doing so. And so I've written up some descriptions of kind of a lot of the things that elves do, but I think you can ground it pretty clearly in four passions, Uh, four passions. And then you have to look a little bit about the individual species of elf. Uh, The first one is loyalty to forest. Uh, Loyalty to forest just says the forest is the most important thing. Um, The forest is there to help you in anything you need. And you're there to help the forest in anything they need, you know, says, find out what the big goals of your forest are, you know, support those, understand that you can go into the forest and you can ask the council, the king for help, and they'll give it to you if it's going to help the forest and understand that you can go into a forest and a pixie might say, hey, I really need your help with this and you should help that pixie. So that's loyalty forest. The second one is devotion grower. And Devotion Grower just says there's this dichotomy between growth and taking. We're on the growth side, and so we need to grow. And so that says, you know, plant forests, gather seeds, uh, you know, uh, help the forest grow, protect it from undue cutting, uh, that type of thing. And then the last two just have to do with those uh, two philosophies I mentioned. And so there's Devotion, the Balance, and Devotion, the Cycle. Uh, Devotion, the Balance says, realize that every single elf is your brother, that these are people who have the same desires and goals as you. Mm-hmm. Realize that every single troll, every single dwarf, all of the race I call the hidden, which are firemen, uh, snow demons, all of those, realize they're all your brothers too, that they have the opposite job from you, but that opposite job is equally important. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it says, realize that chaos is this awful, terrible thing that must be destroyed at all cost. Um, so that's devotion, the balance. Uh, and the last one is devotion, uh, the cycle, which says, hey, you can kill things and it's OK. It's just going to come back. Don't worry about it. Don't feel guilty <laughs> about it. It's totally OK. And that means you really should never fear anything either. You're, you're, yeah, if you die, you just, you know, go down to have an awful couple of, uh, you know, hundred or thousand years in Trigora, but then you'll come back and be reborn. So that's totally okay too. And it, what I suggest overall is, you know, don't try and portray all of these. You try and portray all of these, you'll be going in all directions, but choose one, choose two, figure out what that passion is. Look at how that passion applies to uh, elves. And, you know, use that as your touchstone for playing the character. There's a lot more than that, a lot more about elves. Uh, And a lot of it kind of flows from the most basic things. And I I think the easiest ones to latch on to are if you look at the individual species, of which in Dragon Pass, pretty much only the Vrunkali, the green elves, and the Morelli, the brown elves are that important. And so the Vrunkali, you also have to say, you know, you're the fighters, you're the people who stayed alive, stayed awake and alive during the darkness, you know, Mm -hmm. protect people. Maybe you're the ones that aren't as supportive or or liking of the take your races because you realize they're the ones that destroyed the world. And so they obviously need to be killed. And if you're the Morelli, uh, the brown elves, then you're the people that died in the darkness. And so maybe you're more melancholy. Maybe you have a closer connection to death. Maybe you come away with, from your winter sleep with messages from the dead. And so each of those elf species uh, has different ways that you could portray them too. I, the one other thing that uh, for me personally is often a touchstone for elves 
is a discussion of emotions. This kind of grew out of the fact that the elves have this um, group communal mind and, and when they're in the forest. Mm-hmm. And because they have this group communal mind, their emotions get kind of spread out across all of that. And so that means, you know, if you did something to me that would really piss me off and make me really angry and, you know, might make me punch a wall, if you do it to the, an elf, it just kind of seeps out into the grain. And so that person, elf isn't that angry, you know, his, uh, it, it would be what we, what they call a red emotion. The red emotion gets kind of tamped down. I mean, the whole forest might want to kill you in a couple of days, but, <laughs> but at that moment, that elf, you could describe him as uh, unemotional. It's not true at all, but you could describe him as that. And it's because they go out. And so the green elves divide their uh, emotions between green emotions, red emotions, and black emotions. And green emotions are all the communal emotions, loyalty, devotion. These are what modern elf society says are appropriate. (laughs) And the red emotions, these are all the um, personal uh, selfish emotions, their love, their hate, their fear, their individuality. And so these are kind of tamped down by elven society. It's not clear if that was always the case, but it's definitely the case now. And then the black emotions are, you know, these chaotic, horrible things, you know, like gluttony, greed. I don't remember exactly what they're classified, but they go beyond, you know, personal independence to anti-community. And so I kind of look at that as a spectrum, as a, another way to, to look at elves and figure out how to play them. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that, elf sense that you know lets them sense all those feelings and all that that works not just on plants but any other person like they can feel the feelings of uh, humans for example i think right i think it's mostly mostly plants i bet they can get a little bit of other living things particularly things that are living in the forest like animals i think it'd probably be a lot harder for anything that's mm-hmm. you know just newly introduced because it, it, it's ecosystem basically Mm. Yeah. Uh, so you were talking about the um, you know loyalty to forest and all that. Um, how many of those forests would be around, say, like Dragon Pass, for example? For example, it's not it's not clear to me, for example, how uh, Tarn Disease Grove, which is you know described in the Colimar Lands, is that an outlier or is there you know lots of similar groves around? And so every time you go in a forest, you don't know if you're gonna indeed find some elves or if it's a quote-unquote normal forest, or is there a quote-unquote normal forest ever in Glorantha? Yeah, there's totally normal forests. Um, <laughs> the elf forests are, I don't know if they're the minority in the modern day, but there are certainly many, many forests. The big ones are probably elf forests. The small ones probably are not. Um, mm-hmm. So when I wrote Elf Pack, I, I focused it on Dragon Pass because uh, that's yep. what the line is doing. And so it covers five forests, uh, one of which is kind of outside of Dragon Pass. So the one kind of outside of Dragon Pass, that's the Old Woods, which is kind of the easternmost corner of Arstola. Um, It's a very old forest. It it gives a great way to talk about a huge forest that, you know, has internal uh, uh, clashes in it. Uh, One of the things I really enjoyed doing about the elves is I figured out what made them tick. I figured out the stereotypical ideas for how they worked. And then I did my best to introduce everywhere contradictions. Um, And so the elves, I've told you, they're totally community and unity oriented. And yet the old woods, 
feels like the rest of our stola is doing things wrong and they do not agree with them. And maybe it's because there's some rivers that cut down through the old woods and cut it off from the rest of the forest a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, they believe it's because they, they used to have a great tree right in the old woods that was uh, taken down uh, by our cat probably uh, at the uh, end of the first age. And so then when a new one grew in the Western Arstola, it wasn't their song, their uh, part, <laughs> their community anymore. So lots of contradictions. But anyway, so the old woods is the uh, one of the five. Uh, Ternisi's Grove is another one. It's very small. I think it's about as small as you could have an elf would be and really only exists because of the uh, support and interaction with the Hortlings. But, you know, there's they control a lot of forested lands around them that uh, the local tribes know not to go in unless they, you know, have uh, deals, interactions with the elves, which some of the tribes do. You get up to the Rockwood Mar- Mountains, and there's two there. One's the Stinking Woods, which uh, I-, I keep returning to and that's because it's probably one of the best described elf forests in Glorantha. A number of people have gone gone back to it over the years, including myself. And, and then further to the east is uh, the Vale of Flowers, uh, which besides the Vale of Giant Flowers, there's also uh, a wood right up there, which is called uh, the Flower Woods very originally. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I love the Stinking Forest and the Vale of Flowers because they're different like well first the sticking forest has one of my favorite villains living in it the uh, task riders mm-hmm. uh and the veil of flowers is is just great because it's got this weird stuff with like you know giant flowers and giant bees and the trolls having uh, well some of the trolls having uh, agreements with the elves there and so it's it you know, it's ripe for stories and, and weird encounters and adventures. So, yeah, I love those two places. Yeah, yeah, I love them, too. I was very happy to have them in there. In fact, uh, some years ago, kind of when I was finishing off my uh, original set of writing about elves, I started writing for Trade Talk, uh, a trilogy of articles where I was going to cover all the Rockwood forests. And uh, I think the Veil of Flowers ended up in one of the last issues of Trade Talk. And I had the stinking forest partway done. And the third forest in there is the Redwood, which is much further to the east. And so it's out out of the uh, Dragon Pass region proper. But uh, it's got the stump, which is, you know, some type of burnt out, destroyed great tree. It's got the torch, which is this big uh, glowing light that sends off uh, these, you know, fires uh, that actually land in the Vale of Flowers. And it's got all these huge redwood trees. So I just, I loved the whole area of the Rockwoods and all of the elves there. Uh, they're probably my far- favorite, uh, along with the garden in Pavis. The, the last uh, major elf forest, which, which I covered in Elf Pack, and which is close enough to uh, Dragon Pass to be relevant, is the Dryad Woods. And so the Dryad Woods is a little further west. It's just past the Grayslands. So it's kind of at the very edge of the area we've been talking about in uh, RuneQuest Glorantha. But there have been some adventures out there already. And there's actually an adventure in Elfpack uh, about the Forest of Wondrous Beasts, which we've Mm. seen on a lot of maps, but has never really gotten details. And so now there's a whole bunch of Wondrous Beasts and a problem where those Wondrous Beasts have started to invade Dragon Pass because the elves are being annoying as elves are. Wondrous Beasts and where to find them. Yeah. Um, uh, how do you bring elves? Like, you know, elves are trying to tend to their forest, so they 
generally stay in their forest and you have like a bunch of reasons for elves to go out of those forests. So, you know, two solutions to bring elves into your game are going to be, you know, elves coming to to see the adventurers or the adventurers community because there's a problem, you know, they're cutting too many too many uh, trees over there or there's some disease, whatever. Or just, you know, game masters are free to also add one or two other elf forests in their dragon pass that won't be in the elf pack map, but, you know, it's fine. I already have one uh, uh, in my game that is not uh, canon. So um, what would be for you, like, the the main things that game masters would be looking out for if they either, you know, add a custom elf forest to their campaign or if they want to involve the elf forest is some ways away and they need to get the either the adventurers there or the elf. So for bringing elves into the game, mm-hmm. um, you, you have two options. I told you that uh, all of the elves, they all have this community elf sense. They all think together. Uh, that's, as with everything, 99% true. Uh, the, the, other, the other 1% of the elves uh, are what they call rooks. And these are elves that either never had the ability to connect to elf sense or lost it at some point, possibly due to accident injury, possibly because they did something grotesque that violated uh, elven beliefs. So those rootless elves... They're one great way to bring elves into the uh, campaign. You know, you just say they're no longer connected to a forest. And maybe they actually still are connected to the forest, but at the least they don't have the, um, you know, mental connection to it, the emotional connection. And it might be a good way to play an elf in Mm -hmm. a, you know, murder hobo group or whatever that that doesn't necessarily (laughs) want to stay near that forest. Yeah, exactly. If you just want to play an elf... And maybe play some of their, uh, you know, fun elements. Maybe not. They're just a rootless elf. And so the uh, character creation in uh, Elf Pack is, you know, has all of the descriptions of how to do it. But you could do it now. Just go to the beast dairy, you know, generate an elf, decide any god that you want to follow because they actually can't communicate with with the elf gods via the elf means anymore. You know, maybe they still worship Yelmalio, you know, by going to the Sun Dome, they just can't worship Halamalayo by singing in song with the other elves. So rootless elves are a great way to bring elves in. Otherwise, you have rooted elves, and rooted elves are the ones that are still connected to the forest. And if they're still connected to the forest, any elf you uh, bring in is doing something for the forest. Maybe it's for their sap line, you know, maybe it's for their individual family, which they call a pod. But more likely it's for the forest if they're actually going to the effort to go out. And so that means whenever you're generating a forest or whenever you're using an extant forest, you have to say, what are the goals of the forest? So another thing to remember about the elves and something that should constantly influence what they do and how they do it is that they are long-lived. The shortest elf lives are in hundreds of years. Uh, The redwoods can live to a few thousand years. Uh, there are elves alive who are alive at the dawn. Not many of them, but a few. And so that means that the uh, plans of the forest are often very long term. They're getting sped up right now because of the hero wars. Um, that's somewhat uncomfortable for the elves because it might mean they have to make a plan that, you know, has famil- fulfillment in five or 10 years instead of 100. But wherever you decide a forest lies, they should have a plan. They always have a plan. 
And so the old woods, maybe they are going with the Arstolan plan of the great seeding where they are going to uh, seed all of Mineria and it is suddenly going to burst back into a forest all in a single day. Mm-hmm. Maybe they have their own plans. Stinking forest, each of the three tribes uh, in the uh, forest has their own plan. For the brown elves uh, living there, their biggest plan is to figure out how to reunite everyone peaceably. Uh, well, the green elves living there, their plan is more to figure out how they can, you know, take over all of Dragon Pass. But figure out the plan, figure out what the long term is. Uh, if you go over to the Dryad Woods, their plan is to bring back the Green Age uh, as some type of dreamlike, um, you know, philosophical thing that everyone can touch elf since and everyone feels community and together in a way that even the elves haven't since then. Mm-hmm. So for the rooted elves, that that's kind of the foundational work that you need to do. doesn't need to be hard. Just figure out something the elves might be working on mm-hmm. and then figure out why an elf going out into the world would be doing it and how they'd be doing it. Yeah, because now you, you, you still have to figure out why they would need a bunch of humans, yeah. i.e. the adventurers, to come and help them for it or use them uh, or you know give them a mission or maybe they want something they have or, or whatever. But yeah, cool. I, I figure one of the biggest reasons often is that elves don't really want to go out of their forest. They lose communication with their forest. You can only stay with the elf since when you're within like a quarter mile of the forest or something. Um, And so you start going out and it becomes very uncomfortable. Your emotions go out of control because you can't spread them out. You don't have the knowledge you're used to. So that's a great reason that elves, if they have resources that humans or other races want, would readily, uh, frequently uh, ask humans and others to do something for them. It's because it's outside the forest. I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that the elves that do go outside the forest, they're all weird in different ways. They are, you know, purposely leaving their community behind when their community is 10 or 100 times more important to them than it would be to to any of us, depending on how closely we're tied to a community. You know, there's so much written about the Arlamp and their, you know, communities and how crucial it is. And it, it's that's the next power for elves because of this kind of group mind that they have. Yeah. Although um, wh- one thing that fascinates me about elves is also how, you know, they grow things for certain purposes, right? So they have, you know, bushes that grow arrows for their, uh, for their bows and other weapons and stuff like that. And they have plants for uh, growing armor. Um, but they also have this concept, I believe, where... They can also grow certain elves in a way that they are better suited to actually go out of the forest and go deal with the neighboring humans and, you know, possibly negotiate uh, uh, where they can cut trees and where they can't. So they, they grow these elves who have, you know, maybe a more human face and are better able to, um, physically speaking, better suited to speaking um, um uh, the local human language and all that. So there is still also a bit of leeway there where you can say, well, that elf was grown a bit differently for some purpose. Yeah, yeah, that that's a great description, very evocative. They, they have wood shapers who uh, can shape wood in different ways. They grow their houses that they live in out of living trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, they probably have trees somewhere that copper actually grows on. And they grow elves for specific purposes, just like they grow plants for specific purposes. 
yeah and this is this is absolutely fascinating to me yeah. and of course the uh one classic also thing to require elves for is like you said they have like a long memory because they live long and so um yeah you go talk to them because they know something yeah, that you need uh one thing that i'm wondering is uh how do the rootless elves and the rooted elves communicate with one another Are they some sort of pariah case? Are they really foes of the forest? Yeah, they, I mean, they communicate by talking. Um, the rootless elves, I wouldn't quite call them pariahs. Some of them do stay in the forest. Some of them do keep working to support the forest. They're pitied. They're, they're seen as, I don't know, pathetic might be too, too strong. But Trollkins of uh, Elfdom? <laughs> not quite I, i don't think the trolls pity the trollkins i don't think they look at them and say wow that is so horrible that your life is so constrained by that and that's what the rooted elves do any rootless elves who lives in a in a, a forest they they are seen as a constant you know source of pity it is awful what has happened to them unless they're one of these ones that purposely did something horrible or maybe even accidentally did something horrible They're accepted. They're welcomed as much as they can be. But, you know, you can't understand their emotions. They can't communicate with the gods. Mm -hmm. They're, they're so, lesser. So more like cave trolls and troll society. <laughs> yeah, that's probably caser, closer. I mean, they're not chaos-tainted, probably. No, not. But, but uh, they are lacking something crucial. And Yes. Cool. So uh, we're gonna do go into uh, soon some like uh, deep cut weird questions for you, uh, but before we do that, I want to touch a bit upon the somewhat related to elves uh, races, but that are not quite elves, like uh, you know the mushroom elves, the vorolans, uh, the seaweed, like the all of the um, aquatic plant um, stuff and all that. Is elf pack actually going to uh, deal with those, or um, is that like too separate? Or like, do they even consider themselves elves? Or um, they're just barely touched upon in elf pack because they're not in Dragon Pass. That that was the main criteria. There's probably some red elves, the slurfings there, yeah. um, and there's Varellans up in Troll Lands. Yes, uh, but they're all somewhat separate. And as for whether they are elves or not, it, it's actually different for various of the ones that you. Uh, mentioned uh some of the core mythologies of uh the aldriami say that when uh falamel flamel uh when his seeds came they came to rest on the three elements there's three elements uh, among those three good elements which are earth water and light uh and so the uh seeds that uh fell upon the uh, uh earth upon gada those became the shinsune which eventually were the Vroncali, the morelli the Ambili, the brown, green, and yellow elves. Uh, the ones that fell upon the water, uh, those became all of the various types of the Mirthoi, uh, the blue elves. Uh, so those are all true elves, uh, all of those elves. Uh, there were also ones that fell upon the sun. Uh, those were the lost white elves. I always forget exactly what what I call them, the Halamaldria or something. Um, I'm already impressed by how casually you can say all of the other names of the elves. <laughs> You're good. Yeah. Halamdria. So, so I, I left out the uh, black and red elves there, the browns and the slurfings. And that's because they're not proper elves. Um, 
And so the red elves, so the, the black elves are the mushrooms and the red are the, what are you Sporing. Sporing. Right, okay. So uh, everything in uh, the Aldriami is either a dichotomy or a trinity. And my, my guess is that anything they think is a dichotomy actually is a trinity and they just don't understand it properly. But that's kind of one of the um, gaps that I purposely left in my description of the elves for people to figure out on their own whether it's true. So the dichotomy is that you have the grower and the taker. So if there's a third element of that, maybe it's chaos. The elves certainly don't think it is. But the other possibility is that it's hybrids, the, the things that are part grower and part taker. And within the elven mythology, these uh, appeared in the middle of the storm age, what they uh, uh, call the uh, red age, the God's war, when the grower and the taker were actually in perfect alignment in this perfect moment in time. Um, it was when the world could have been balanced and then the taker kept taking things and we started descending into the darkness. So one of the new things that uh, all of the hybrid races, according to the elves, grew in this perfect moment of time. Mankind is one of these, uh, and also the Red Elves are one of these. So the Red Elves are kind of seen as equivalent to man in a certain way, except man are current, clearly beasts and the Red Elves are plants. Uh, but they partake equally of the grower and the taker. So they're plants, but they grow from the death of other plants. Uh, the other plants die, they spore, and, and new ones appear. So the Red Elves, they're kind of seen as half-elves, but they're weird. They don't uh, participate with the other elves in any way. Some elves might tolerate them, some not. They're not part of the grower, even though they are half the grower. I, I think the black elves, the Varallans, are seen as even more distant. Uh, according to the elven mythology, they're the seeds that fell down to the underworld and grew. And so they kind of partake of uh, the grower and the taker in a different way, and that they're this pure growth thing but they grew in this environment of death. I mean, and the, so the, the Vorolans are my favorite elves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, they're very distinct and, and a lot of fun with all of their mushroom brews and actual real telepathy. Yeah. Um, they are, are pretty varied. So black elves pretty much not seen as elves at all. And uh, I, I said, my hope is that the elves besides having a strong, understandable foundation, are also full of contradictions. I think their treatment to the Black Elves is one of them. Because, I mean, if you just look at the math, they're part grower, part taker, just like the Red Elves. The Red Elves are at least partially accepted, even if not accepted well. The Black Elves are seen as pretty close to the enemy. Right, yes. Uh, there's also, um, within the standard elf races, you also have runners... Uh, who are kind of ape-like uh, beasts associated with shrubs. And you have pixies and uh, sprites, who I think are mostly the same thing, but you know they're kind of more ethereal beings that don't even necessarily have a physical body. Mm -hmm. um, and you have similar uh, entities in the water. I think uh, the pixie or sprite things in the water are called flitters or something. Um, yeah. So those are all there, too. I don't have fancy elf names for those guys. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, then we have the dryads. Right, the dryads. So the dryads are, are the spirits of trees. And uh, I think Jeff uh, Richards actually gave me the best description of them ever, which is he said, you know, they're, they're like the uh, 
you know, the elder race trolls, the, um, they're the, yeah, the mistress trolls. They're the big spirits, uh, you know, who are even more long lived. They are basically demigods. Um, and so that seemed like a pretty, pretty good description of dryads to me. Um, they are kind of more spiritual, like the pixies and sprites, which is kind of an interesting connection that someone could probably make something of. Uh, but they're the centers of the forest. In the dryad woods, they actually control the forests. Right. But even in the uh, other woods, they're usually one of the council seats, the elder elder sister council seat. Uh, and they're usually very well respected and also very powerful. And so when, yeah. uh, when adventurers enter an elf forest, typically they would first encounter you know sprites and runners who are sort of messing up with them or guiding them and then uh brown and green elves and then eventually if they're in, in good standing enough then they meet one of the dryads and the elf king local elf king and, and things like that that's sort of the strata there not sure i'd describe it in quite that way yeah. um my personal experience is that the first thing most uh, adventures would encounter in Elf Forest is an arrow. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's not quite that they move up through the ranks, but rather that they move through the levels of protection. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of what elves create is artificial, ironically, um, and so the. First thing they're likely to meet are the warders, the people that protect the forest. Um, The runners are actually uh, very secretive and hidden, even to the elves. I mean, they're they're part of the community, but they're a very quiet part of the community. The pixies are are partially spiritual. And so those you probably don't see at all, except maybe at the corner of your vision, uh, where you're like, what moved over there? But the warders, they're the ones that, you know, alert someone's entered the forest, you know, go check out what it is. And if they seem to be taking uh, beyond what they should, or if they seem to be in areas that we homicidally consider our own, then do something about them. Um, the, the kings and queens of Elfdom are interesting, and they actually are probably a pretty early thing that people might meet, and that's because they don't really exist. I mean, they do exist. There is nobility among the elves. Um, it, it's mainly hereditary, but the Kings and queens in most forests aren't the ones who make the decisions. That's the council, which they may or may not be a part of. If there are kings and queens of elves, they're the ones that are specifically there to meet with the humans and be, like you said earlier, a fair face, someone that can be understood. And, you know, humans understand individual rulers. They don't understand councils. They don't understand communal collaborative decisions. I thought the, the king and queen had a seat on the council as the representative of hiking elf or something like that, no? Maybe. Hiking elf is a warder. You know, he is a protector. The king and and queen, they may sit on the, you know, inner council. They may not. They may be real. They may not. They may be nobility. They may not. Um, So uh, in, in the adventures in Elf Pack, the very first one is a trip into the stinking forest to recover an old uh, uh, artifact. Um, and they meet, you know, some people who say they're the rulers of the forest and they can find out whether that is or not the case. <laughs> cool. 
Okay, so it's getting uh, late, so um, uh, Jurg and I have some weird and uh, very specific questions. <laughs> I'm going to start. Um, <laughs> the first one is, um, are elves cannibals? Uh, yes. They, they mostly eat plants. I don't think they mostly eat Aldraya, though they certainly could. Okay. Jurg? Yeah, um, I have a couple of questions of how the brown elves came to be, because uh, they uh, obviously experienced winter and repeatedly, and uh, there were no brown. Uh, there wasn't really br- uh, winter in God's t- in God time, at least according to the God Lords. So all of the elves of the earth were originally the Shin Shinai. Uh, these were the elves that that yeah, their seeds fell upon Gada. Yeah. And then really bad things start happening in God's time. And uh, when these really bad things happened, the elves had one of two ways to reacting. Uh, one was that they became warriors. They uh, grew their leaves into needles. Uh, they learned the uh, war skills of Halamalalio. And uh, uh, they also, many of them learned the uh, killing skills of Babistagor, who they call Bengara. And so those those became the green elves. Uh, the first of them was was High King Elf himself, who may or may not have been Vrunkal. And uh, that's how the Vrunkali came to be. Uh, some of the other elves, they chose not to change. The Vrunkali, the green elves, they became something that they weren't supposed to be. You know, they were supposed to be these children of the grower, and they learned how to take. They learned how to kill, to murder, yeah. to fight. These were all inappropriate things for elves, according to some of the elves. Uh, the Morelli took the opposite tact. They said, we are not willing to change like that. We will remain the children of the grower. And as the darkness grew greater and greater, the only thing they could do as children of the grower that did not defeat their basic nature was to die. And so they buried themselves under the ground. They may or may not have died during that. And then afterwards... The dawn happened, the world was reborn, and uh, the Vrankali came out from, it's unclear if they came from Winterwood or if they uh, came from the Lightbringer lands in the center of the world, and they started waking everyone up. And they found these elves that had buried themselves in the ground that had, uh, you know, died or nearly died or hibernate or whatever they did exactly during the Dark Age, and, and they brought them back to life. And these elves were no longer the same. Just as the Vrankali had changed themselves to become fighters, uh, these dead elves, these elves who had died, changed themselves by dying, even though they thought they weren't going to, and they became the Morali. Um, so, and uh, both uh, the brown and the green elves came from the green middle middle tile of the spike. Yeah, yeah, they 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 all originally came from from those same ones, um, and they're all changed. There are no longer any of the original elves of the earth. And uh, the reason why the Roncalli don't mate with the Dryads is because they chose to take. That seems that seems a good reason. Yeah, the the Dryads may find that totally unacceptable. Uh, and of course, uh, the Umbili down in the south, the Yellow Elves. They're yet another thing that was changed by the darkness. They, according to Elven mythology, at least they were burned when. Uh, Yelmalio got too close to the earth as he started circling as the uh, Sky Dome got upset. They were the elves that got burned in the south. But they didn't take, they didn't die, and so they're the ones that do still mate with the dryads. And they don't have females. 
Yes. I don't know why that is actually, but <laughs> definitely the case. <laughs> I, I assume that some, some sort of uh, weird stuff uh, Sandy Peterson made up from his biology class. Probably. I just don't know what the myth is yet. I've never read it. I've only read a little bit about the embelly. So speaking of the God time, God time, and then the fact that those elder races all are fighting each other. So the, the elves, the dwarves, and the trolls are fighting each other. The elves and the trolls are fighting mostly because I think when Yelm died and the trolls went to the surface, they started eating everything and the elves tasted the best. And so they started eating elves and the elves didn't like that, obviously. And so they're fighting. So that's fine. Uh, however, the dwarves, as, as I understand it, uh, they don't like the elves because they think that the elves broke the world machine. Yeah, they, they, they totally did. Yeah, so the <laughs> world machine might be in the elves' myth, the you know the sky dome or whatever. But they they do have that mythology that they grew too big and they broke the world. So aren't they kind of like facing the dwarves and saying like, yeah, that's our fault. We're sorry, and they're still fighting, or like they would I, I... acknowledge that they indeed broke stuff right i think being an elf means you're never sorry um <laughs> oh yeah because everything you do is for a reason i bet the dwarves feel the same way just in a diff slightly different way so i think the elves made it very obvious that they're not sorry because high king elf according to myths and these are mostly god learner myths mm -hmm. he got uh death and he was like i'm gonna go i'm gonna mess with the dwarves i'm gonna go kill the maker and his brother stone mm -hmm. and he does and wrecks the world machine so that's the god learner myth but yeah. you know maybe that's actually a take on them upsetting the sky dome when they grow too much i don't know but certainly mythologically they don't seem to have any compunctions over any of it i mean i think they would say themselves yes we upset the sky dome that's clearly bad mm -hmm. but the sky dome was part of the kind of natural ecosystem of Glorantha. You know, we have the ground, the sky, it, it, it's Yom's, Yomalio's realm. Whereas what the dwarves are doing now, machinery, stone, that's all awful. Stone is one of their bad elements. Earth is, you know, a good element, but, you know, it gets petrified and hardened and it becomes stone and stone is worthless. Nothing grows in it. So... Something to keep in mind about the uh, wars between the elves and the uh, other elder races is that everyone has their own viewpoint on it. Yeah. So trolls, they hate elves because elves are really tasty. They actually don't hate elves. They really, really love elves. Yeah. Um, elves <laughs> hate trolls because they are the creatures of darkness. They don't actually hate trolls. They actually see them as necessary. If there'd been trolls to trim back the trees, then the sky dome never would have gone upset. But sometimes they just need to be killed because they're, you know, getting out of hand. I, I, I think that there's, in many ways, even less animosity for elves against dwarves. They don't like this machinery. They don't like the stone. It's all unnatural and awful. But dwarves usually don't make a problem. They usually just, you know, stay in their little stone cities and do their little stone things. Um, the lands outside, take the lumber for their vines. 
when that happens and it's an ex- excessive, then maybe they have to do something. But <laughs> I mean, they, they probably used to do all of those things a lot more back in the first and second age when there were a lot more of them, right? I think so. And we know there were huge wars uh, in, in uh, the various lands between the dwarves and the elves in the first age, mostly. Yeah. But for the most part, it's balance. If, you know... They stay in their lane and they don't do too much. No problem. We'll kill them occasionally. That's cool. And we'll not kill them occasionally. And that's cool also. Cool. So uh, the cycle, uh, uh, is it a belief of the elves that the earth or that the world had to uh, come to an, a near death in the way of a cycle in the God to earn? Uh, I don't think so. I think that was a terrible mistake. They... I'm not sure I've ever looked at it through the lens of the cycle. So that's, that's interesting. Um, maybe, maybe there's some that do. I, I like the idea, but the the main description of it is that it's about the balance, that it just went out of balance and it got worse and worse. And the thing that does relate to the cycle is that the only way that they were ever able to uh, resolve it was by the grower giving up the rest of his uh, uh, life. So they have this growers, this kind of primordial deity who made the whole world. And he's been slowly coming apart throughout history. So first he made the three good elements. And then halfway through the uh, God time, uh, he made Bengara, Babistagor. And then at the very end of the God time, the remaining half of him made uh, Voria, Baratha, when, when the world needed to be reborn. And so the grower is pretty much gone at this point, but he's got these five different gods that, you know, are various parts of him. Um, mechanically speaking, in the rune quest, the humans are divided between the man rune and the beast rune. I assume that the elves are divided between the plant rune and the man rune, depending on which way they, they go. Uh, how do they call the man rune? Because, you know, man rune is a god learner bias thing, and probably i assume like did 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 the elves have a humanoid form like you know bipeds with arms before the uh humans were created in the god time uh, yes and no <laughs> <laughs> so, am i thinking about this too much <laughs> well it, it's a question of what myths are real what myths are not real so the elves myths say that the elves were the first born on all of glorantha Um, that they were the very first entities before the dragons, before the giants, the first thing were plants. Even if everybody disagrees who came first, I think everybody agrees that the elves and trolls came before humans, no? I think so. I mean, that's why they're called the elder races. I mean, fundamentally, I would have to assume that at some point the elves were given the man rune to be more attractive and, and like humans, But I don't know. Their myths certainly do not say that. The, in, in their myth, they might not be bipedal creatures? I think in their myths they are, because, I mean, the myths are all so heavily touched by the god learners sure. now. Yeah. Maybe original myths, maybe not. But for the elves, the big difference that happened was that they um, lost the total unity of the Green Age. When the Green Age was there, it wasn't just that they could all communicate. They really were all one. There was just one conscious entity for the entire world because it was all one forest and they cracked the uh sky dome or pushed it up out of the way and uh 
that let chaos in. And according to their myths, at that point, suddenly consciousness was uh, put upon them. And so that's their big change there. The form isn't important to them. Form can be shaped. Form can be changed. Their fundamental change in what they were between what they were before and what they were now is that they became conscious, independent entities, which in many ways, many of them see as the great sin, the great loss. So it's a bit uh, individuality uh, versus uh, being fully immersed in the community. Absolutely. I, I said there's many you know, disagreements and, and things within the elf community. That's certainly one of them. The elf community say it's community all of the way. And yet individuality is a passion that they can have. It's a passion that probably all of the greatest heroes of the elves, all of the ones that have made the biggest difference had. And yet the community says it's bad. Well, too bad the plant rune is a form rune, though. But anyway, uh, Jurg, do you have some last questions? Uh, well, I have one about the uh, inter-elf conflicts, like uh, green elf versus brown elf, pers possibly uh, one type of tree uh, uh, pushing another uh, type of tree out of the forest area, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, there were absolutely wars uh, among the elves, particularly in the First Age. Uh, the god learners called it Eldriah's Woe. Uh, the Eldriami call it the planting. And the planting? The planting. And um, so what, what happened was you had these green and brown elves who, before the dawn, they didn't both exist. So the first time they ever both existed in Glorantha was at the dawn. And the green elves went through and they uh, woke up all of the brown elves and took rulership of their forests. So... What happened is later on in the Green Age, the brown elves started to say, you know, we're not the warlike people, and you don't understand that. And we can never be a united forest when we have these two different understandings for these two people who were never in the world together. And so the green elves had to be planted just like the brown elves were. And so there was a massive slaughter of green elves and brown elves, but mostly of green elves led by the brown elves so that they could show them the experience that the brown elves had so that they could make them the same and united again. I don't know whether it worked or not. I don't know if the green elves who were planted have actually come back or, or not yet or, or if they're about to, but that, that was kind of the philosophical underpinning of that particular fight. But You know, you say various conflicts, and that's one of the points, that the fundamental foundational idea of the elves is that they have these unified communities. And the discrepancy in that is that they fight with each other. And what you have to understand to make both of those fit into the same picture is that they fight with each other to better the community. And so in that point... There was a consensus among the brown elves that the green elves were, to a certain extent, no longer like them, and they needed to be made like them again. And so this was the way to do it, and they buried green elves and brown elves until they could find a new unity. <laughs> it, one tree might push another tree out of the forest because that tree is clearly bad for the forest. And, of course, the thing is the community isn't always right. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm I'm almost uh, sensing some kind of uh, you know dystopian sci-fi movie themes here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I love the idea of like we, we need to all be friends, so let's kill everybody. <laughs> 
Anyway, we're running out of time. Jörg, do you have some uh, other questions? No, I, I think I got my most urgent questions through. So. <laughs> awesome. So we will uh, let Shannon go. Shannon, thanks again so much for taking the time to uh, explain all things Aldriami to us. It's been a pleasure talking with both of you. Thank yeah. you. And uh, we are definitely looking forward to Elfpack. Yes. Yeah. And uh, we'll have links in the show notes for all the things that people can buy that have your name on it. Uh, <laughs> but definitely I would recommend your uh, Designers and Dragons. It's uh, very illuminating. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The God Learners. Our website is godlearners.com, where you can find episodes, newsletters, and articles about Glorantha. Reach us via email at collective at godlearners.com or via Twitter or Facebook at The God Learners for any questions or feedback. We are The God Learners. Question everything to the void and beyond. <laughs>